You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Hi, and welcome to Sparrows and Wildflowers, episode number 29. Today we get to hear from Anglican minister Shane Dirks. But first, if you'd like to discuss anything that you've heard on the podcast, feel free to send an email to hello at rachelasimpson.com. And don't forget that you can like, favorite, follow, share, and review the podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And now for today's episode. Shane shares really candidly and in depth in this funny and insightful interview. He speaks about growing up in Western Sydney, his passion for cycling, his career in sales, meeting his wife, his journey to faith in Jesus, and his career transition into ministry. And now I hope you really enjoy this discussion with Shane Dirks. I always feel when I talk about where I grew up that I grew up in two places, despite the fact that I lived in the same house from when I was born to when I was married. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up in Winston Hills, um, but at the same time, I feel like I grew up in Marylands. My house was in Winston Hills. My parents were both school teachers and took me to the schools they taught at. So I went to primary school in Granville with my mum and then high school with my dad in Marylands. And like most people, like as soon as I could drive, I was where my friends are. All my friends were around Marylands for school. So whilst living in Winston Hills for the first 20 years of my life, I got married when I was 20, um, I spent most of my day in Marylands. Once I could drive, nights, weekends, everything in Marylands with friends, met my wife in Marylands. So Marylands was kind of like as much home as Winston Hills was. Right. Yeah. And are those two places quite different? They are quite, they're quite different. I mean, going back at that time, like the hills wasn't quite the hills it is today. There's been a lot of development and things like that. And, um, you know, I think the level of affluence has has raised. Um, But Winston Hills and Marylands are quite different. I mean, sadly, you see Marylands on the news sometimes and whatever these days. But Mm -hmm. to me, it's just Marylands. Yeah. Um, But they were quite different. I mean, at that time, it's like everyone at school had no idea where Winston Hills was. It just was like the sticks or whatever, which seems weird today. But this is, you know, 25 years ago. Uh Um, So, yeah, they were quite different. But... Just, just seemed normal to me. Yeah. But as I reflect on it now, I feel like a dual citizen of these, <laughs> these two suburbs because they were both important for me. Right. And what are some of your early memories from there at Winston Hills? Um, I guess uh, I'll talk a little bit more later about bike riding and stuff like that. But for me, there was a park near our where I lived, like just sort of 200 metres down the road. Mm. And particularly in my younger years, myself and all the local kids, we would forever be either riding bikes at the park, playing football, mucking around. Just spent a day at the park. My mum would always be like, where have you been? I've been at the park, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I guess as we got older, I'd be riding my bike a little bit more when other people wanted to play football. But I always remember that time and those friendships. I remember traveling because like every day to school was always in the car with mum and dad traveling to and from school and stuff like that um and i remember being envious of kids who could walk to school i mean it's not like i traveled 
miles but i was always in the car with mom and dad i was like i want to catch the bus i want to walk i want to ride my bike i want to yeah, do what the other right. kids are doing but i'm going to school with my parents who are teachers and yeah i don't advise that for anybody no <laughs> no <laughs> fair enough and do you have any early memory of of god or of religion or spirituality yeah well i mean i was raised in uh, i guess what i'd call a nominal Roman Catholic, um, well, my mum was nominal Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. um, which means to say, you know, we're Catholic by name, I went to a Catholic school, but it wasn't like a huge thing for us. Um, but I would say I've always been God conscious, mm-hmm. always believed there was a God and he was probably the one related to Jesus, but not really understanding a whole bunch about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a school called Holy Trinity. So I was aware that there was this idea of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and whatever. I do remember um, going to a Roman Catholic school. um, And, you know, I can't speak for Catholicism because it was just in my young years. But I remember when I had my first Holy Communion and, you know, you go and you eat this little wafer thing. And I remember the first thing I did after coming out of the church was went and ran as fast as I could because I thought... They told me I just ate Jesus. I wonder if I can run faster now. Every time I'd have communion, that would be my test. Always go outside, see if you can run faster because you just ate God. Like a superpower. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. Just in my kid mind, just a lack of clarity about what was going on, but thinking, well, if this food's that special, maybe I'll run faster. (laughs) And, you know, I always wanted to run faster or be stronger or whatever. Yeah. And did it... um affect you if you didn't run faster were you disappointed or you just lighthearted? well i i don't think i didn't get cut up about it but i was like well what is this thing actually doing because it didn't taste great I don't, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not running faster i'm yeah. not sure what's going on here but i'm told it's really important mm-hmm. so that that was tricky i mean for me in terms of early spirituality as a kid as i say i always believed there was a god keen somewhat to know who he was Mm. um you know if something was going wrong you pray um yeah Mm. god help with that but i think now in my adult life i look back pre-meeting jesus i'd say for me god was more like a genie in a bottle so like when you got an issue rub the bottle that's like praying see if you can get some wishes out of this guy because he's Mm. meant to be powerful and whatever but not a lot of concept for him being bigger than me or having an opinion of his own. It's all like, well, let's see if he'll work for me today. So yeah. Then, you know, yeah, his okay. food wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was family life like for you growing up? It, I guess for me, I have an older brother and an older sister. Um, all of my family came to Australia from South Africa and I don't speak Afrikaans, but I know this phrase because they always said it about me. I'm what you call a lat lamaki, which I believe means late lamb. So okay. like my brother is 13 years older than me. My sister is 16 years older than me. Right. So I was more like an only child at that level. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't have enormous memories of like all the family playing together or like I look at my family now with my kids and like when we're on holidays together and I watch them play together. I'm like, man, I wish I was doing that. But I had more like auxiliary parents rather than a brother and a sister because they were so much older. Mm. And did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes and no. 
like I can't say I was always amazed when people knew what vocation they wanted Mm. I I wasn't that kind of guy in fact for me like when I first locked on to wanting to be something that would have been probably late primary school early high school I wanted to be a professional bike rider Mm -hmm. and I was like that's all I want to do I want to win the Olympic Games I have a weird story about my passion for that sort of stuff yeah um but in terms of actual jobs nothing really i mean when we would do debating at high school and stuff like that sometimes i think oh maybe being a barrister or something would be good but i would never want to do all that study Mm -hmm. um maybe i'm not smart enough anyway um just wanted to be a bike rider um i remember actually my first proper job i think outside of school was as an apprentice electrician Mm-hmm. And the way it happened was I'm sitting in maths class one day and my best mate turns around and says, oh, I'll put my name down for this aptitude test with Energy Australia to be an apprentice. Oh, yeah. And I said, did you put my name down? He's like, <laughs> no. And this is my attitude. So apathetic. I went, well, you should ring them and you should put my name down too. <laughs> and he did. And as the story goes, we both did the test. I got an interview. He didn't. I oh. got the job. <laughs> And then quit the job 10 months later. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, but no, outside of, you know, the dream of maybe being a bike rider one day, Mm. I didn't really have a a vocational dream, not in my childhood or high school Mm. years anyway, no. So bike riding was a big part of your world? Definitely, just as a fun thing to do. And then racing started in the early years of high school. Um, And, you know, I hope that might lead somewhere. It didn't really, but. You know, at the time, I'd hoped that it would. And did you enjoy school, like the academic side of it or the social side? Oh, I loved the social side. Mm. I, I had zero interest. In fact, my my one of my friends, who was my training partner, we were the same age, and we used to meet at, like, ridiculous hour of the morning to go training before school. And then you go to school and you sleep. Well, I would just sleep in class because I've been up since 4 o'clock that morning riding my bike or yeah, whatever. Right. And um, when people are like, you haven't done your homework or you're asleep in class, I need school, I'm a bike rider. That's how I'm going to, and again, that didn't happen. Um, So I had pretty much zero interest in the academic side of school. Mm -hmm. Um, But I loved the social side of high school. Like, it's just so much fun. It's funny, actually. um, I reflect on it now and think about how, and I've shared this with young adults about you need intentionality with friendship after school because school provides you with this framework where you turn up same time every day, your friends are there, there's time together, it's all there. And when that school time ends, you're going to need to be intentional about how you maintain those relationships and which ones you're going to because it won't be that simple. It's not like you'll get pulled together every day. You're going to work, you're going to study, you're going to do, you know, so the ones that matter. You know, and I think it's really cool that the two oldest friends I have were two people who were instrumental in bringing me to Jesus. They don't live close by, but that bond has just held us together for the years since high school finished, which was 95. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Great. So after school, you went straight into the apprenticeship? Yeah. um, In my senior years of high school, as part of bike riding, you know, there was a local bike shop that was a sponsor of mine and I also did some work in that shop. So I was actually not realising I was starting to form what would make up more of my vocation, which was sales. 
I was selling in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never kind of thought that that would be what I did. And then, you know, the apprenticeship seemed like, well, you got to do something. Um, and so I started doing that first year out of high school. I was sort of working the two jobs of apprentice during the week and on the weekends and Thursday nights in the bike shop. Um, but as I say, the apprenticeship only lasted 10 months and then I went full-time in the shop. Okay, so that's why you left being an electrician? Well, I figured like this. So you would hear stories every now and then of people making mistakes with electricity, like high-voltage applications. I remember hearing one story of a guy making a mistake in a, in a substation and getting burnt. I was like, I don't want that to ever happen to me. And the mistake he made sounds like something I would do. I don't okay. want that. Yeah. When you make a mistake selling, you lose the customer. Another one walks in a few minutes later, you try again. Mm. Um, and the people who I was apprenticing with, all my colleagues, they were mad keen about electricity. I was like, this is just a job, boys. I loved it. And I thought, when you don't have the passion of those in your field, you're going to get left behind. So this is, I don't think this is for me. Whereas selling was something I loved, came naturally. Um, the older people who I worked with would say to me, hey, you know, you do well at this. And the owner of the store said, you ever want to come here full time? You can. And so I did. Wow. Again, not for a long time, but. Okay. Well, it led to next steps in selling. Right. Yeah. And this whole time you're still cycling? Uh, no, actually, the way that worked was cycling kind of, I was a classic story of super keen junior who burns out. Like, so I think by the time I was 18, I was like, I've had enough of the early mornings. Um, if I could go back and talk to me at that time now, I'd say, I'd say stick with it because you've actually come to a good standard. It was kind of like if you have a little bit of talent, you win some races. So then you go and race with better competition and then you don't win all the races anymore, but it's a season of adapting. And I think between the load of training and the, hey, I'm not winning, things aren't going my way, but not realizing you can't win all the time at this level. I think I just got discouraged and thought I'm never going to make the dreams I had and I just want to I just want to sleep in and I would like to do something different. Um so I gave it away. Um at kind of age yeah 17 or something like that. Wow, okay. There were some comebacks later on. The bike uh-huh. riding story is not over. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so there wasn't that much bike ride anymore. I worked in the store and then, you know, that that made me think more about where I wanted to take sales. Mm-hmm. And what I really wanted to do was be a, a sales rep in the bicycle industry. I thought that'd be great. But again, I was 17 or 18 and I thought no one's going to put you in their car and trust you to go be a rep. Yeah, right. So I thought it'd be good to get some experience at a higher level of sales. And there was an opportunity um, with a really well-respected and larger um, automotive dealer and I thought, wow, selling cars. I never thought I'd do that. But I applied, got the role and spent a number of years selling new Ford vehicles and then fleet vehicles and learning to deal with both different kinds of individuals with bigger ticket items and then moving into dealing with fleet clients and things like that. And after a few years of that, I've now had the resume to come back to a bicycle wholesaler and say, I'd like to be your rep. And they went, great. Oh, and wow. 
and by that stage I'd started writing again and it was a very happy little time in my life. Okay, yeah. wow. So you held on to that dream of coming back to the bicycle industry the whole time? Um, yeah, yeah. So vocationally, like I guess it, it's not a lofty dream uh, and it came a little later where I thought, yeah, I'd love to be a rep and I sort of worked out a course to make that happen going via selling cars just to get the experience and it, it worked out. So, you know, I think by the time I was 21 or something like that, I was repping and loving it. Um, I was recently married. The way I got back into bike riding was one day I walked up the stairs at church. And I puffed, not church, at, a, at work, and I puffed. Oh. I was like, what is happening? I should not <laughs> be puffing walking up these stairs. I should do some exercise. And, well, I'll pull my bike out. And riding led to racing, and racing led to a little bit more racing, and just for a time. Wow. Yeah. But it was really cool for the time that I was racing and working in the industry. It was like a, a number of things came together. It was quite fun. Yeah. And you ended up at the Oceania Games. I did, um, which I don't know. That was, you know, again, I had some goals. Um, that was not one. Like when I was younger, my goals were like world domination type <laughs> stuff. When I was sort of in my 20s and now a senior bike rider, I, I had hoped to be able to get back to state level and maybe win state medals again as I'd done as a junior. And this opportunity came up. I think they were just short for riders or something, but I got a call out of the blue asking if I'd like to ride for New South Wales at the Oceania Games. And I did. And I thought, wow, that's weird. Like I'm totally outgunned. Like some of my heroes were there. I'll save you the long story, but it was just, you know, for the heroes, they're not at peak fitness at that time. The Oceania Games isn't a big deal to them. Oh, okay. So, on their average day and my best day, wasn't quite my best day, but a pretty good day, I was competitive and I was able to get a medal that day, um, which again, something's worked in my favour. It, it sounds better than I actually was. <laughs> um but that night was actually quite important for my pathway into ministry as well. Oh, wow. Cool. What happened? As a Christian, I'd started to grow a fair bit and I'd started getting vo involved in things in my local church. That was cool. Um, but now I'm back on my bike and I'm sort of retracing and sort of dabbling around this dream I had as a kid because... For me, bike riding as as a teenager, it was my god. It was, it was by winning that I got a, a, a sense of self worth because I had this terrible fear that I was just another person taking up oxygen. I wanted to be able to demonstrate that I was not an extra in the movie of my life. I was a star player because look, I, I won a bike race. I <laughs> big deal. Um, so here I am, uh, sort of riding with some you know i'm on the podium and the two guys next to me are both world champions and one of them was my childhood hero sort of thing and what was amazing i call this like my moses moment there's a part in the bible where moses god gives him a view of the promised land he doesn't get to go into it but he gets to see what it kind of looks like mm -hmm. i call it my moses moment because i'm standing there it was like the promised land like i'm on the podium national anthem is playing i'm standing next to these two legends you know i've got someone telling me that maybe i should come back to squat the state squad and all this sort of stuff and maybe this is where it's gonna happen it was just it was just a blip in the program and i went this is great this is really great i do like it 
but it's got nothing on when I get to share the gospel with somebody. Wow. As a sales rep, I get to talk to lots of people and you talk about product, you talk about each other. And for me, I got to talk about Jesus. And I thought those moments are way better. The things I get to do at church as a volunteer, way better. I feel more fulfilled and more like I'm in my groove and my actual promised land when I'm telling someone about Jesus and sharing like that than this moment. Wow. And so it was a really special thing that God, I feel like he really engineered it for me. Because as I say, some things went right for me. I am not good enough to have the medal that resides in my sock drawer now. And it's the only medal I've ever kept. The rest I chucked out. I keep it because I am happy with the achievement on the bike that day. But I keep it because of the mile marker of my life that occurred that day. As I stood on the podium celebrating the stuff, I went... I think I know what I need to do. I want to do ministry full time, which was a seed that someone had planted with me a few years before. And now I guess my character had developed, my capacity had developed, and now the passion was there and the vision was clear. And I thought, I got to tell my wife this when we get home. Yeah, yeah, so it was a very important moment in the the trajectory setting of my life, or at least the trajectory development. So, Mm. yeah, it's kind of cool. That's why I keep that medal. Yeah, amazing. Mm. And so backtracking a little bit, Mm. how did you get from the kid who kind of wondered what that Holy Communion was all about (laughs) to being that guy on the podium who was like actually sharing Jesus is the thing I love the most? Well, it's it's a journey. Um, Yeah, I I was the kid in um scripture classes who i was engaged like i was oh, am i allowed to say smart ass on your podcast I'm you not are sure. allowed <laughs> um, i was a smart ass at school you know i loved having a dig and getting you know kicked out of class and whatever mm-hmm. but i gotta say i had a serious desire to know what was going on like when i'd go to religion class and stuff like that and i'd go to roman catholic scripture and I'd ask some questions. I remember I asked questions sometimes that even like the other kids were like, you can't ask that. And like, it's affected me now as, as a minister, I guess, because I want to say to people, you can ask whatever you need to ask. Mm-hmm. If we say the Bible is this great truth, then it's, then it's going to stand up to scrutiny. It's going to be able to handle your questions. God is big enough to deal with your weird, you know, ask what you've got to ask. Mm. Um, so I was always keen to try and, I guess, concretize this idea of a God and what's he like and whatever. And, you know, I don't want to say anything that's unkind to my former scripture teachers or anything like that. But I think I didn't get kind of clarity and I felt that they were scared to pursue some of the questions I had. And I know that's not an uncommon story. Ricky Gervais, who's a noted atheist, he traces his atheism back from being disgruntled with poor answers in scripture classes and just being fobbed off. I think we all prefer to someone to say, I don't know, rather than give you a yeah. a half answer. Like, just yeah. say, I don't know, I'll find out. Then, you know, you can't ask that. Mm. So for me, I think I, I became a little disengaged. Like, as a teenager, I'm not getting real solid answers. I'm eating food that doesn't make me run faster. <laughs> And I'm sort of thinking, look, God exists and whatever, but the whole church thing's not for me. Da 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 da. Into high school, 
uh, in senior high and some friends of mine start becoming Christians. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And they start telling me about Jesus and things like that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Who are you to tell me about Jesus? I'm, I'm like born Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. you know. I'm like the proper brand. I'm like the <laughs> authentic original. You're like this kind of, you know, imitation, no frills. I'm Beans Means Heinz Christian. You're like something else. Um, and what was confronting, uh, I guess, probably two things that really, maybe three things that really stood out. One, they talked about sin in a way that, I hadn't comprehended sin before. For me, sin was kind of like a smudge. So like, it's a problem. It's not that great. It's pretty bad. But, you know, it's it's just pretty bad. They're like, actually, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's more than pretty bad. It's a death sentence. It's a, you can't, you, you can't fix this one. No one wants to hear that. So I just pretty much told them to bugger off because who wants to hear that? Like, why tell me something I can't even fix? The good thing is they weren't laboring that point or anything, but they had talked about that. The other thing they talked about, which was amazing and allowed me to now enter the concept of sin, was what Jesus does on the cross. They're like, the death of Jesus is not just an example. It's not just, oh, isn't that sad? We should all worship this guy because a bad thing happened to him. You know how sin... Um, brings death while he's dying your death for you so what that means is when he dies for you your problem is taken away you can today have certainty for eternity you can today say i'm forgiven today say if i die i'm going to heaven my concept before was sin's pretty bad jesus is pretty good do stuff that's pretty much like him and you might be okay. Yeah. I don't want to invest in pretty bad. Maybe it will and it could be okay. Mm-hmm. What I got from them was it's a death sentence. It's a life solution. It's yours for free. Mm. Took them a few goes to share that with me. Eventually, obviously, I came to the point where I was like, well, why on earth wouldn't I want to follow Jesus? But along the way to get there came some pretty full-on debates between me and my friend who I mentioned earlier, who I'm still good friends with today. I remember one day, you know, again, like I'm painting him like he was like always Bible bashing me with sin and stuff like that, but that's not the case. We're at his place working on a a HSC project, which in classic Shane fashion, you're meant to collect all these newspaper clippings for months. I'm like, I don't need that. I'm a bike rider. I don't care. The weekend before it's due, I go to his place. I'm like, okay, Give me all the clippings that you didn't use and I'll put mine together. Yeah. And so this guy is helping me, loving me, looking after me. And I don't know, I think I was the guy who stirred all the Christians at high school. Like they had this they had this group um, called JAM, Jesus at Maryland's, because Christians are lame with all these acronyms. <laughs> um, and as they'd go off to JAM, I would get everybody else at school to start singing Kumbaya, my Lord, oh. <laughs> just bagging them out and stuff like that. Yeah. It's funny that it was like six months later, I was the guy at school assembly making the announcements for JAM. So, mm. you know, God got me back. <laughs> um, 
so I'm at my friend's place. He's helping with this thing. We get into this discussion about Jesus and stuff. I'm paying him out and giving him a hard time. Yeah, you're an extremist. It's all a load of crap, blah, blah, blah. And he actually said to me, you know, you don't understand without Jesus, you're going to hell. I told him to go to hell <laughs> wherever else. Uh-huh. But it stuck with me. I thought, he loves me. He's looking after me. He wasn't just having a dig. He was telling me an inconvenient truth. And so it kind of just sat there, I guess, with me. Why would my best friend have just told me that me, Dirksy, a good guy, is going to hell? Bugged me for a little while. There's something else that was important for my journey, and that was an envy that came in me. You know how I said in the scripture classes, I always wanted to know more about this stuff but wasn't getting answers? Mm. What I got envious of is, for me, God was like the force in Star Wars. Like, he's he's out there, whatever, and, you know, you can't really know him or whatever. These guys are talking about God like they know him. Like, they talk about Jesus like he's someone you can sit down and have a conversation with. They know what he thinks about stuff. They know how to respond to his actual view rather than my genie in the bottle that I'm just hoping, you know, the magic mist will do as I ask him to do. Mm. I was envious of that. I'm like, they talk about God like they know him. I want to know him. And then there's two car trips that are important. One is on the way to school uh, where we used to drive past the church that would become my church, um, St. Anne's in Marylands. On the side uh, of that church is a, a verse from 1 John, he who has the son has life. I went, man, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. That's all you need, the son and you got life. What about you need the Bible and Mary and a bit of church and some do some good stuff? I'm like, that church seems like a real simple one-stop shop. Mm. Get the son, get life. Okay. So I've got the hell thing going on that's bu- bugging me, the envy of them talking about Jesus like they know him and this verse of scripture. Then... There's one more car trip that's important. On my way home from school one day, just randomly, I'm in year 12. It's May 1995. And traveling from Maryland to Winston Hills, I'm going along um, Bryan's Road in North Mead, about to turn onto Old Windsor Road, just as you go past the Coke factory. Boom. It's my Damascus Road moment. All of a sudden, my heart softened. I have no more desire to bag out the Christians. I have no more kind of, I don't want to hear about the God who's going to cramp my style. I don't want to search after the genie in the bottle who does my thing. All of a sudden, my heart was just softened. I'm like, I need to know this guy they know, and I need to know about him now. Wow. I call it my Damascus Road moment because I was the persecutor of the Christians at high school. And I'm just driving along. Well, I wasn't driving. My dad was. I'm in the back of the car. And all of a sudden, bang. Just nothing that you could see to trigger it. There's nothing. I mean, obviously, we can talk about my story and the witness, uh, my friends telling me about Jesus, the way they lived and all that sort of stuff. There's very natural explanations for it. But something just changed in my heart that day. Um, There's a part of the Bible in Ephesians that says, you know, you were dead in sin and transgression, but made alive in Christ. Mm. And that happens when God gets busy and by his spirit makes us alive in Christ. And I can only think that at that moment he touched my heart by his spirit and went, it's time to stop messing around. Come and know me. 
come and know my son. I went home. I was like, what do I do? And there was this tiny little Bible on the shelf in the spare room at my parents' house. I think my sister got it when she got married or something. So I went to it, opened it, page one, Genesis chapter one. Read, 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 read. I lasted about eight chapters and I'm thinking, yeah, it's all right. Um, I'm thinking, this is a good story, but I have no idea what it's got to do with me. No idea how this changes anything. So I rang my mate the guy who had helped me and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And I quote, I said to him, all right, all your Jesus crap, I want to know about it. And um, I love telling that story. And I love remembering the silence on the other end of the phone because he would have been gobsmacked because I used to give it to him. And he's like, okay, 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 all right, okay. (laughs) Like he was spun out by it. He's like, tomorrow. Let's get together at school. Got together with him and another friend and they gave me a book to read, took me to jam. And I think, yeah, that week I heard the gospel again. Someone told me, yeah, told the group again about this perfect solution of Jesus' death for my big problem of sin and how there's nothing I need to do to earn this. I don't need to do anything. I just need to trust the guy who died for me. Why on earth wouldn't I do that? Mm. So that day, um, I gave my life to Jesus. Amazing. Yeah, who kind of, I think, took hold of me on the on the road that day, but was sort of drawing me in. Didn't see him coming. He's stitching me up for, for a while. <laughs> and, yeah, so that was May 1995 that I, I came to know Jesus, gave up on a force, gave up on a genie, gave up on bikes, as you know my god and it was like i've met the one who brings certainty and assurance and i felt so full and it was really cool amazing and so just a few years later you got married did you meet your wife at the church (laughs) yeah um it's really weird like i was like any guy in high school sort of thing you know where girls are you want to be there sort of thing um and all that sort of thing and it was fun when I became a Christian, I've gone to church and <laughs> there's this girl who's up the front who's playing um, keyboard in the band and, like, she's pretty. I'm like, wow, she's a babe, you know, but we're not here for girls. I'm like, and I, I didn't even have to talk hard to myself. I'm like, we're not here for girls. So excited about Jesus. Let's get into this. It's really cool. She is pretty. Let's note that. <laughs> Let's move on. And this weird thing used to happen that, you know, she'd be playing and looking at her music, but whenever she'd look up from her music would be when I would happen to look in her direction. <laughs> and I remember my mindset. Oh, by the way, this is my wife I'm talking yes. about. <laughs> we joke about this now because in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not looking at you. I'm not looking. But if you wanted me to be looking, I'd look. <laughs> sort of thing. So, like, We've had this eye contact sort of thing. I don't want you to think, oh, who's that creepy dude checking me out? I'm trying to play in the band. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not him. But somehow I acknowledge I, I acknowledge you're pretty. You look like fun. Let's get back to singing this song sort of thing. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was ages that, like, that happened a few times. It was ages that I went to that church for what well, felt like ages. And then, um, yeah, there was one particular... I think it was, an, it was a New Year's Eve 
where um, a lot of our friends were away and it was church that night and we got talking and I'm not going on there telling you the rest of the story because it's long and it's painful. It's not that simple, but <laughs> a little bit later, the rest is history. And so, yeah, we got married when I was 20. She was 19. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. And then so skipping forward again, you had your career in sales, mm-hmm. come back to cycling, mm-hmm. and you had this revelation that you maybe wanted to be in ministry. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Yeah, in this whole story, probably like the most sort of bang moment is that moment on the road outside the Coke factory mm. where my heart gets softened. But even that was a increasing trajectory. Coming to ministry, it was not like um, all of a sudden, bang, a light goes on as such. Even though I can talk about the moment on the podium and getting clarity and stuff like that. This is all just growth in a journey yeah it's funny like because from inside of me i'm just shane i'm like the same bonehead i've always been i mean i think god's been doing a work in me i'm not quite the same bonehead but it's just me i'm just a normal guy and sometimes people talk to me as the minister (laughs) i think you know ministers don't get born in a special minister hospital (laughs) Or fall from the ministry tree or whatever. Yeah. We're just normal dudes who uh, and dudettes who are uh, been serving, and maybe someone identifies some some a little bit of character and some competencies, and you discern a call, and you go with it, and things increase. So for me, it's really cool to have gone to a church like Maryland's where. They were really keen in engaging young people and doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, very shortly after becoming a Christian, I was asked to share my testimony, which must be a wild ride when you're the minister and you go to this brand new guy, tell everyone what happened. You're like, oh, what's he going to say? <laughs> um, but, you know, those sorts of opportunities. Um, the minister there, who I ended up working for uh, after going to college and stuff at a different church years later, it was amazing. I think he saw something in people and saw something in me that sometimes was overlooked. Uh, and he went, you know, this guy's in sales. He knows how to speak. He knows how to communicate. People talk to me and say, so what was it like to go from selling to ministry? I'm like, well, a major part of my ministry is preaching. I have always been, for, you know, for most of my working life, I've been in the in the vocation of promotion and communicating things that I believe to be true, uh, advantageous and beneficial to people. Now I do that with a perfect concept and a perfect person. I'm still Mm. just saying, here's Jesus. Here's what I know about him to be true. Here's how it changes things for you and here's why I think you should invest. Some people hate that kind of language, but it's quite true. Not a lot has changed in that way except that my product never breaks down anymore. <laughs> you sell cars sometimes. Sometimes you sell a Friday car. You mean to. You don't know. I'm not a mechanic. Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't work out quite how you hoped. Sometimes your service department's rude to a new customer on their first service. Like, Why did you do that? Now I can tell people about a God who is perfect, um, a God who loves them, a God who people struggle to understand, like, your God's so good and the world's so rubbish, what's going on? It's like, well, he thinks it's pretty rubbish too, but he's redeeming it, you mm. know, so he, he's on your team. He's trying to take us to a perfect world. Get on board. Come with. 
So I guess coming into ministry, it's a case of, in terms of skills, there were some, I remember the first person who was, I guess, showing me the ropes of Christianity, discipling me, um, said to me one day, he goes, you know, maybe one day you should think about full-time ministry because when we read the Bible, you're one of the guys who sort of gets it fairly early in our group. Um, amongst your friends and stuff like that you, you're one of the leaders so people follow he goes but your character's rubbish you're, <laughs> you're an idiot <laughs> so wow. you know you're an egomaniac and all this sort of stuff and he's like but one day and it's true it like he didn't he, he spoke the way I say it makes it sound rough but he spoke truth in love mm-hmm. someone needed to tell me and many of us need to hear that good ministry is not just about capacities capacities that are not balanced by character are like trees with giant branches and no root system Mm. they are very dangerous to themselves and anyone else in the case of a storm they fall over yeah that can happen in ministry Mm -hmm. and so this guy was very right just to encourage me and say you have some some capacities god's given you and you should think about what you could do with them but you can't do anything with them unless you develop the character that will undergird them and so that was a sobering and encouraging message all at once that you tend to get from wise people. Mm. Okay, so that seed's planted. Opportunities come. My walk with Jesus kind of goes up and down a bit as I, I'm growing up. Like I'm, I'm married at 20 and making a mess of that in the first year anyway because I'm like, my poor wife married a boy. <laughs> I still <laughs> say to myself, you poor thing, you married a boy. You've had to put up with a lot as I've grown up. Uh, and grow up to be qualified to be a husband and, you know, now a dad. Um, But I guess my character was developing over time. Um, Opportunities were given to me. People nurtured me. So my skills were coming, both skills that I just naturally have. I believe there's a difference between talents and spiritual gifts. You can be good at something without it necessarily being a spiritual gift. I think it's a spiritual gift when your talent meets a need that God's people have and your gift isn't just a you're good at it, but your gift is a gift to all of us. So it helps the whole body grow because you're doing this thing and it's, it's, it's a beautiful synergy. And so it seemed like maybe my talents in promotion and speaking and whatever were coming together with opportunity, nurture, and maybe becoming spiritual gift. And, you know, I play in the band at church lead services. They let, they started to teach me to preach and things like that. I have my Moses moment at a bike race one day and the whole thing's coming together and it just increases and increases. And by the end, by, you know, 2002, I'm thinking maybe I should do this. And then my church had a more college mission team come to our church. And I found a guy who seemed like the most down-to-earth basic guy. Because everyone talks about how hard Bible college is. And I was the guy who slept through high school. (laughs) I didn't go to university and all this sort of stuff. So I grabbed him and I went, dude, I didn't go to uni. I slept through high school. Can normal guys like me do it? And he's like, yeah, the smart guys help you. It'll be fine. That was probably the, one of the last bits of affirmation and encouragement I needed. So I went to my wife and I was like, I think this is on. She's like, I've been thinking it's on for you. So we went to our minister and his wife and said, don't laugh at us, 
but we think we should do this. And they're like, we've been totally thinking the same thing. And so it seems like all the stars are aligning. And so I applied. I went to Moore College in 2003 and graduated in 2006. So it was kind of funny. I'll tell you a funny story about it. Yeah. So everyone, there's a brainiac, right? I'm the ex-car salesman, bike rep guy. And I'm sitting in class with all these doctors and engineers and lawyers and stuff. And like when they're like, oh, this is hard stuff. I'd be like, you think it's hard. But one day around lunch, I thought, I wonder how these guys went in their HSC. So I asked them, how'd you go? Oh, and this is back in the day where these have a, a TER as the way they measured it. And one guy goes, oh, not that great. I got 80. 80 is a pretty red hot score. Next guy, what'd you get? Oh, 90. Yeah, it went all right. Next guy, 95, 94, 93. They're like, what'd you get, Dirksy? I got 30. And these beautiful Christian guys, all their heads slowly got, went down. Like, they felt embarrassed for me. They're like, oh, you must feel bad because you got 30. Yeah. And I could see it on their face. And I went, guys, we all ended up in the same place. We're going to end up with the same job. You did all that work and I was partying. Who's the dummy now? <laughs> So it was it was kind of funny, but you know, yeah, use the effort when you need it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So again, the the journey to ministry is progressive. Mm. And so, since being a minister, like, what's been the most challenging part? Sneaks up on you sometimes in terms of the challenges. I'll give you an example. Early in the piece, I guess sometimes it's the difference between work and toil, like. You're in ministry, you're a Christian like everybody else. And there's times where things that are work, you're happy to do, even on your day off, because it's just like kind of who you are and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you don't realize when work trips over into toil and it becomes some of the stuff that is actually hard to do that's part of your vocation. And I remember early in the piece doing that one time too many and getting pretty, um, I won't say burnt out because it's got some baggage with her but a little worn out and more tired than I realized I should be both physically and mentally and emotionally mm. because I would do work that seemed fun but it could slip into something toilsome and taxing before you realized and that can happen relationally too um, as I say there's a tricky thing that can happen in relationships around church as well like i think i think we're all still trying to work out what the minister is sort of thing like it's just weird sometimes like there's i think one of the things that stung a little early in ministry was there are times where because ministers don't come from a ministry factory or (laughs) ministry hospital or whatever just normal people stepping into a calling uh, who God's people graciously, you know, they pay me a stipend and I say, hey, we agree with the calling, so don't have a real job, we'll support you, you get on with ministry. You're like, okay, that's cool. But sometimes I've been in maybe social settings where you're having a conversation and you're just with everybody and just talking like normal and you feel everything's, everything's cool, you're just part of the community. Yeah. Sometimes it only takes one sentence. One sentence from someone, and they didn't mean it, or sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. One sentence can snap you into some kind of harsh reality where it's like, you're a bit different. Right. You're the minister. You're not 
quite just you know I, I i can't put my finger on it quite yet it's like a is it a you're saying that because it's your job to say that or you're saying that i don't know it's just it's weird like that where it, it can be a little isolating it doesn't happen frequently but it, it can happen and you just gotta i was talking about this with uh one of my colleagues today who is a uh, a very wise man at the other end of his ministry to me. And we were talking about how when you open your heart and share with people and be just try to be authentic in your ministry, you can get enormously hurt. Mm. Sometimes people miss your motive. Mm. And it's weird when your motives are missed. It really hurts. Um, you open your heart and that can happen. So I guess there's two options you can have. Like some have taken the approach of going, you know, I'm not going to leave myself open. I'm going to do the ministry at arm's length and I'm going to be my own guy over here because, you know, in fact, there was a previous generation who said you don't make friends with the congregation, you minister to the congregation. Right. Um, and he and I both agreed. I, I put it like this. I'd rather open my heart and be an open book suffer the hurts because if you don't do that you're never going to get some of the thrills and the joys of authentic life together Mm -hmm. um so i think it's worth it like life we've got this weird concept of life it's so hedonistic where if you're not smiling something's wrong it's like really is that do you really think always smiling being happy and having fun is an appropriate response to a world that's not always wonderful yeah sometimes the most balanced approach to the existence we have is to have moments of joy, have moments of utter sadness, have moments of actual anger because something's not right, and you you know, um, have moments of wonder, as in wow, and moments of I wonder, I just don't get it. <laughs> sort of like it's not all about smiling happy. Life's gone wrong if you're not smiling and happy. I think I think that's a lie of the Western world. So. Yeah, ministry, I guess one of the challenges is just that how to be one of everybody. That was a rubbish sentence. Like how to just be one of the people, but also to understand that your role is specific. I mean, when we talk about ordination or eldership or whatever, we are talking about being set aside for something. Sometimes that is to lead and govern a people. Sometimes it's to bear the weight of care. Sometimes it's to deliver both wonderful, anointed, beautiful truths and sometimes to share inconvenient truths or to challenge something everybody thinks is great and go, it's not. we got to think again or this is a problem, etc. Um, so yeah, there's a number of reasons why. And sometimes it's just because you don't know. <laughs> like i don't know but they're looking at me i don't know i don't know what we do next i better work it out you know Mm. i'm getting over yourself's a big deal too like just get over yourself and understand you know what are my strengths what are my limitations being becoming self-aware and going i really need to put some people around me who have strengths i don't have and not at all be defensive or intimidated by that but realize that's a blessing Let's get more of those people who outshine me around. Yeah, challenges. Everything you're good at can also be your limitations. So not being a control freak, like being able to 
I, I think our role is actually to raise up more people, to discover them, disciple them, and deploy them to ministry, not to hold it all to me. It's not all about me being this superstar player. It's actually about me being a player coach. I think that's what 1 Timothy in the Bible teaches us so much about, the investment in others, equipping them, uh, again, delivering sometimes inconvenient truths like my my guy who said to me, you've got a lot of skills, character's not there yet, we're to work on that. <laughs> it's tricky stuff. Yeah. It's broad and there's just a million and one, it's such a generalist role sometimes. It's mm. just, and <laughs> I don't get myself in trouble with anybody, but sometimes people have strong opinions on what you're meant to be doing and you think, oh, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm meant to be doing <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. So well, managing the expectations of others and being yeah. able to be kind but sure in putting your personal boundaries in place. Because if you don't do that, statistics show there are so many pastors who will not retire as pastors. Mm. Um, their ministry will gobble them up along the way. And again, it's like the tree that falls over in the storm. These are These guys are often wonderful people with the best intentions, but... There are some challenges that sneak up and if you're not vigilant it it can go go south i guess yeah and then on the other hand what would you say has been um i guess the most rewarding or exciting part of being in ministry um i think and this 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 ties in with what i was saying about investing in others there's a time i think when you're younger and newer at stuff and whatever that you want to get some wins you know, like if I use a sporting analogy, you want to be the one who carries the ball over the finishing, uh, over the try line. I'm a bike rider. I don't know about football. <laughs> it carries the ball over the finish line and scores the try sort of thing. Uh-huh. What I've learned is there's far more joy in investing in people, increasing their capacities and stuff like that, and seeing you were like 10 plays back, but bang, 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 bang. You know you set some stuff up. And you see the try get scored way down there. And no one will ever know. Well, some people might. But most people sitting in the crowd will never know the instrumental part you had in that try. But between you and God and those people who you've invested in, you're like, that's what I'm here for. This is to help everyone be all they can be under God. You know, um, I have a friend who has, has just finished Bible college. Um there was a time where she didn't look like she was ever going to go anywhere near a Bible college, and I think some people had given up on her. I love that, you know, by God's grace, our paths crossed, and there was some time to invest, and she's going to do wonderful things for others because her, her particular story is unique, like all of us, and I just think she'll bless others, and I love knowing that God used me a little bit um in part of her story those are the the thrills for me i think developing the teams and getting there some of the things that you love the most are the things you hate at first like where it just is dysfunctional it's not working but then after a while i guess people get the vision you get over yourself you say sorry for the things that you went in too hard about and whatever and we get it and again the try is scored all the way down there and no one will know but you know god knows and the people you immediately invested in they know yeah and everyone's stronger 
and you go, this is the kingdom growing. This is this is this is me being a vessel of God's blessing, and that that's where I think the wins are. That's where it's fun. Yeah, amazing. And then, so in your ministry, you've gone from Western Sydney and yeah. from a, a large church yeah. over to the North Shore, just to still a large church, but not the same sort of size. Yeah. What's what reflections would you have on on that transition and the difference? Geographically, there's not that. Uh, I'm still learning. Um, I haven't been here long enough to really know. Uh, but geographically, not much seems very different, and people are people. Um, and in terms of western, it was kind of northwestern Sydney, and the hills is all the hills. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that not that different yeah. at, at one level. Uh, I've also been part of ministry sort of in Penrith sort of way um they spent some years in Dapto as well so that that's probably quite a, a little bit more of a contrast I guess you would think geographically and I do laugh with God sometimes and go seriously I thought I was the guy you were preparing for Western Sydney ministry and now I'm the senior minister of a North Shore church what is going on with that yeah um, that's your humor, Lord. Um, so that, I may have missed my mark. It's early days. I'm not able to comment strongly on the geographic difference, particularly my last two moves. But what I do notice is some difference in culture from size and life cycle and life, I guess, stage and age of the church, where you see how different churches um, have I guess different cultures of the speed that they can change this uh, what they actually acknowledge as a change like for for some churches the smallest little thing oh that's a big change for other churches you do something quite colossal and I was like, oh yeah it must must be sunday so yeah understanding those differences sizes of churches does change some things it changes the way decisions need to be made it changes the way staff structures must work it changes where decisions are made. Like in a small church, like when you got 30 people or whatever, you're going to make a decision. We'll get everybody in and see what everybody thinks. Mm. Try and do that at Willow Creek in America, you know, where they've got like thousands of people. You can't all come together and have a town hall meeting every time you decide what to do. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges. Um, you know, churches... There are some churches that run very much on a family kind of management model. They tend to tap out at about 200 members. To go beyond that, you need to move to a more organizational culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to make the church harder. That's to make the church more pastorally attentive and sensitive for more people because you just can't do the same things in the same way. The capacity tops out. Mm. So I guess that's one change I've noticed in coming to a smaller church is for me to adjust my speed expectations and things like that. But also as the senior leader here to start to gear the church and help us understand some of the necessary growth mechanisms for next steps because I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's okay to accept a plateau, a pause, or a decline. God will do the things God does in his time, and it's, it's his show. But as faithful leaders and ministers, I think we are pursuing every avenue we can to further his kingdom, to grow his church, and 
um, I will not be satisfied for a moment if I don't think I've explored every avenue to grow his church in quality and depth and certainly in quantity as well. So, yeah, that, that, that's a bit of a challenge just to, to understand where everybody is at because you, you can't go from one thing to another overnight, mm. but you can't wait forever. Yeah. So that, that, that's just tricky to, to work that out. And so what does kind of day-to-day look like for you now? <laughs> um, whoever invented email, seriously, <laughs> why did you do it? <laughs> why did you do it? Um, day-to-day, uh, there, are, there are the scheduled things. Um, you know, obviously planning is important. Uh, what a, a lot of time is message prep, obviously. A lot of time is um, planning next things. I'm still learning. I haven't been a senior minister before, so there are administrative tasks that come across my table that never used to. I mean, I've been my 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 previous role. I had staff who reported to me and things like that, but this is just different. I'm still learning it. Um, there's there are what I would call white noise things that you do that just come up. Um, there's the concerns of people to help them move through there's trying to cut out enough time to not just be working in ministry but working on the ministry so you're thinking what are the next steps why am I doing what I'm doing is this the best thing for us to be doing or should we have a different model um where are the mission opportunities in our area I gotta go for a walk I gotta go you know to you just got to to go and learn um what are the concerns uh, that we should be bringing the word of God to bear on in this community so that our preaching is not just educational, but it's prophetic and transformational? Mm-hmm. Um, how am I doing? Because <laughs> sometimes your ministry becomes your God. Honestly, there's times where I've gone, wait, 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 wait. This isn't God. This is ministry. Mm. Stop. Look back at the one who called you to him on Brian's Road. 20 years ago or whatever um yeah i've actually was talking to my mentor the other day saying i'm not sure i haven't worked out my day-to-day rhythms yet i need some i need some help he's like well stop plan your diary better i'm like yep that was pretty simple i'll do that (laughs) that was just a couple of days ago so i'm still trying to work out the day-to-day nice and so for your journey has there been a particular bible scripture or even figure in the Bible, a Bible passage that you found really significant? Yes. Um, although I feel like some people have their verse and that's them. I, have, I probably have three that I think are, are mostly important to me and I do have a figure I love. There are a few figures. but um, So I remember when I was at, at college, I was studying for exams second year and uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, uh, which I have here, Uh, Just the second part of it says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I was studying for my doctrine exam one year, and I read that. And I've got to be honest, when I became a Christian, a lot of that was, I love that Jesus takes my problem away. I don't want to go to hell. You know, that's not something I want so great and sometimes i think my following of him may have been out of fear of the consequence of not following him Mm -hmm. i'm studying in a nerdy place like moore college for a nerdy doctrine exam Mm -hmm. and i read this 
verse again and I start to cry. I'm not a do I don't cry a whole lot. I've realized now there are certain things that can make me cry and I'm not sharing them. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so humbled that in the closed circle of knowing that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he opened that and went, Shane Dirks, come in on Brian's Road sort of thing, you know. I want you to know us. I want you, you know, it's like you go to a party, you don't know people until they put their hand out and go, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Rachel, hi, I'm Shane. And you introduce, God chose me. Why? I don't know. No one will ever know. He chose me because he just decided to love me. That's not something I could have celebrated when I was first a Christian. When I was first a Christian, I loved the idea that I was thinking I chose God. But I love that he chose me because he could have chosen anyone. But he picked me out and went, I want to set my love on this guy. I want to die for this guy. I want to call this guy into my family, into my service, into my heaven, into, you know, myself. And I was just humbled. And I think that day my faith developed from a bit of love and a lot of fear to love. Where I was like, oh, I see the love of God here <laughs> and how it's so personal to me and how I, you know, could never have engineered this by myself. But he called me in. I was just humbled by that. So that's a really important one for me. That is a That was a gear shift in my faith and a maturing in my faith. Uh, two very important, I don't know if I can quote them, but they're important um, scriptures for me, just that have blessed me in life. And I think, I think I was getting a reputation at my previous church for sharing one of them with people. Um, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, we need to keep telling each other that. That's like at the heart of the gospel. People need to know you can mess up. You won't be condemned. Acknowledge that it's a mess up. Like, let's not go, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters. But no one's going to condemn you or God's not going to condemn you for it. You know what? You mess up. Like this thing, when someone rebukes you, no one likes to get rebuked, but there's actually a way of adopting uh, an attitude where you're like, okay, thank you, because I was making a mistake. No condemnation for me. I get to start all over again and do this more wisely, more in a more godly fashion, in a more helpful way. So I love just reminding myself and reminding others that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a truth that I want the world to know. That's, that's at the heart of the gospel. Romans 5 is at 11. Um, I don't know, I might get that wrong. Um, But it says, since we have been justified by faith, or something like that, since we've been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Uh, I think I messed up the first part, but to understand the concept of having peace, shalom, wholeness and fullness with God, I'm the kid who growing up thought I needed to win bike races to prove that I wasn't just taking up oxygen. Mm. I was trying to get my shalom from riding a bike fast. But God says, Jesus has died for you. You've been washed clean by his blood. You trust in that. You've been brought into my family and you lack nothing. You have wholeness, fullness, shalom, peace with me. And you know what? I'm the one who's actually like 
bigger than anything else. I'm the one who will judge the earth at the end of time. I'm the one who hands out the medals, really. Well, you have peace with me. You have fullness with me. You lack nothing with me. There's nothing you can do to add to what you have with me. And there's nothing you can do to take away from what you have with me. You have fullness. So for a guy like me who worries about, am I enough? Am I doing, am I taking up oxygen? To know that because I've been justified by faith in Christ, I have peace with God. That's one I like to remind myself of and go, no striving here. We don't need to strive. Let's be faithful good steward of of your time talent and treasure but you don't need to strive there's nothing you need to add to yourself god's given you the whole deal you have peace so those are the the scriptures that are important my favorite bible character easily jonathan that dude is the real deal uh in fact my middle name is david so my, my, my eldest son, his middle name is Jonathan, because I always hoped, you know, we'd be great buddies like, you know, yeah. David and Jonathan are. There's this amazing time um, in 1 Samuel where Jonathan helps David kind of elude his father, Saul, who's after, you know, wants to kill David because David's the emerging king. The crazy thing is, and Saul makes this plain to Jonathan, he's like, don't you understand as long as that guy lives, your kingdom can never get established. Jonathan, you're the prince for crying out loud. Do you not understand? I'm like I'm like the most powerful king with the best kingdom. I'm not gonna live forever. When I go, you get it. But you fool, you're 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 jeopardizing your dynasty and mine because you help out David. How how are you doing this? And then in the next scene, you get David and Jonathan together. And Jonathan pledges his allegiance to David. And there's this beautiful moment that I think is sometimes misunderstood where, where they kiss each other. And I think the interpretation of that comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us, yeah, it warns the kings of the earth, all those who would aspire to be the ultimate king. Don't kid yourself. God has anointed his king and he is the king above all kings and what does it say at the end so kiss the son lest he be angry and destroy you in his wrath and what we have in jonathan i think is one who comes to david god's truly anointed king and kisses him he's saying i kiss you i pledge my allegiance to you the kingship of God's Christ is more important than the kingdom of my, of me. Mm. So I like to think when he kissed David, he kissed his own kingdom goodbye. Yeah. That kiss was him saying, goodbye, me being king. And now you apply that to any of us. Here's Jonathan, man with the world at his feet. The dude could have anything. Like he's about to inherit a great kingdom. But him, far more important to surrender that to follow God's anointed king, God's Christ. And I think, wow, if that could shape my life and the life of the people I get to influence where you would surrender your little empire in the way of Jonathan to surrender that to the king of kings and kiss the son, that's a dude I want to be like. So yeah, Jonathan is, I think, I don't know, you meant to say Jesus is your favorite character in the Bible or if you're a Sydney Anglican, probably Paul or something. But- <laughs> For me, it's Jonathan all the way. Not even close. There, there is he. No one even close to him. He's my favorite. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, Shane, what would you say is at the core of what you believe? For me, the core of what I believe is that in Jesus there is assurance. There's no more questions. There's no more ifs, buts, or maybes. I can be sure of my worth. I can be sure that I'm loved. I can be sure I'm not taking up oxygen. I can be sure of my eternity. Because his death blots out my past, demonstrates his love, and his resurrection breaks any barrier that anyone ever thought was over them. If God can break the barrier of death by Jesus coming back from the dead, what's going to stand in your way? He's like, my resurrection, I am the resurrection. Come to me and I'll give you the same life. And so, you know, the one who came back from the dead, how much more can I trust in his promise that he'll come back from reigning in heaven to bring heaven and earth together, create this perfect eternity, and I get to be a part of it as a co-heir with him? Pretty amazing. Yeah, Jesus, the eternity, the certainty, the... The fullness, it's, it's shalom, like I said before, it's great. And what would you say are your hopes and dreams for the future? They've kind of changed. It's, I guess it's, it's somewhat uninspiring at this level because once upon a time as a bike rider, it was win the Olympic Games in world record time, climb Mount Everest and tell everybody that I'm better than them. <laughs> can't, can't accuse me of taking up oxygen then. Um, that's obviously changed. Uh, in meeting Jesus, as I came into my vocation of ministry, uh, I guess probably early days I wanted to have a great thriving ministry and all this sort of stuff. There was a book that came out a little while ago written by uh, Don Carson, who's a noted theologian, wrote about his dad, who was a minister as well. Um, I think it's called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And when it came out, everyone's raving about it. I was like, I don't want to read about an ordinary pastor. When the book called Memoirs of an Extraordinary Pastor comes mm. out, I'll read that one. Yeah. What an idiot. <laughs> well, it didn't take a f- it didn't take long to um, have those kind of edges knocked off and be humbled. And actually, it was at the beginning of earlier this year. I actually read that book, as I read the last page where Tom Carson, who it's about, dies. Again, I sound like a big crybaby. I just bawled my eyes out because I was like, amazing to watch someone who's just done the faithful job they know how to do, not perfectly, but just faithful as they know how to do it, come across the finish line. And once upon a time when I looked at other ministers, I was looking at the guys that had the biggest, best ministries and whatever game. I want to be like him. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to have a fruitful and faithful and thriving ministry. Mm. And I think it'd be silly to say I didn't want that. But you know the guys I get a little envious of now? The guys who have retired <laughs> and have done their role. And I sort of look at them and I go, awesome, you made it to the end. You tried your best. You had some great wins. You survived some losses. But you stayed faithful the whole way. And you've done it. And you you seem at peace with the wins that you never got. And you've made your peace with the losses that you might have caused. But you've run your course. This sort of thing Paul talks about, I think, in 2 Timothy. Like, you've run your course, done the race. 
And, you know, I don't want to put anyone in their grave, but soon enough you will receive the crown of glory. And I just think that is a cool thing to get to because not everyone makes it that far. I told you before the statistic that a lot of pastors won't retire as pastors. Mm. I'd love to be able to come to any guy I try my best. I think I helped some people along the way. Man, did I make some mistakes. But I know I've tried to be faithful and now here I am over the line let's see what else we can squeeze out of me that'll be good but uh i made it because sometimes it's scary (laughs) so i'd love to be one of the i want to be an old guy who i think okay my dream's growing i want to have kind of the spirit of caleb so even when i retire likes to be able to say hey i'm just as vigorous as the day i started but let's be clear i am an old man who has made it to the end sort of thing (laughs) yeah i think that's where i'm at Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.